Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla and every episode I sit down with a panel of experts in marine science and conservation to answer one of your questions about sharks and the oceans. Now we had a little week off last week while our team was attending some exciting sharky events so to say thank you for all your patience this is an ask us anything episode where save our seas asked you guys to send in all of your ocean related queries so we could pitch them to none other than shark scientist and ceo of save our seas dr james lee with a little help from me and the amazing jade schultz who is content manager for save our seas This is a super fun episode where the three of us tried to answer as many of your questions as we possibly can. And it took us on a pretty wild journey through careers in marine conservation, to schooling hammerheads, to the recent breakthrough for Makos, and even fossilised shark poo. So stay tuned. I just wanted to say thank you as well to everyone who sent in such interesting questions. I mean, they certainly gave us food for thought. But if yours wasn't covered, please don't worry because that likely means that we are covering it in a future episode because it deserves a real deep dive. So please keep your ears out for that. Okay, without further ado, let's dive into our episode where you guys ask us anything. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Isla. How are Hello, you? Hello. Thank you very much for having us. No worries. I mean, we're, we're all talking like we've, this is the first time we've done a podcast episode together, but James and Jade were actually the first <laughs> guinea pigs for this podcast, which will never see the light of day. <laughs> uh, yeah, unofficial guests. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so a good place to start actually is to get you guys to describe who you are and what your role is in Save Our Seas. Uh, basically, I um, I think I've got two jobs within Save Our Seas Foundation. Like the first is the very general like communications, but online. So uh, working with our project leaders, helping them with blogs, with news stories that come from the foundation, um, or our project leaders, anything newsworthy that's happening um, in the general area of sharks and rays and ocean. Um, and then social media content as well. I've got a social media manager who, um, Kelly, and then a graphic designer. And we just kind of, yeah, this is the other part of my job that comes in, which I find is really cool. We work really hard to get people super excited about sharks and to spread sharky facts in fun ways. Um, so that, you know, when we do finally have a call to action that comes out saying like, read this paper or, um, you know, sharks are threatened and these are their threats, they'll actually want to be interested in them. So we try and get like the general public and as many people as possible stoked on sharks. Um, and then once we've kind of got them in on that, then share news about the foundation sharks and, uh, ocean conservation yeah and you guys you guys do so much as well so much work so all of the social media content that you see at home uh, jade and her team are the amazing minds behind that so 
Um, so yeah, really cool to, to hear more about it. And we'll hear more about it a little bit later on as well. Um, but yeah, James, same question to you. Sure, yeah. I am sort of a, a chief executive officer, which is sort of a bit of a fancy way of saying that, uh, yeah, I sort of managed and oversee the general operation of the foundation. Um, but actually, the foundation is a, a very small group of individuals. So really, I sort of get a bit involved in everything um, and... Primarily, that's our grant-making program. So we um, have various different grants and projects that people can apply for, and we sort of uh, review those and and choose all these different exciting projects that we get to support in in following years. And then we have our centres in South Africa and Seychelles and the States, all doing different things from education and through field work to lab work like genetics and sort of coordinating, coordinating those. And then really communications which jade has just spoken about which is sort of our invisible fourth center um but it's sort of really one of the most important ones and and sort of you know helping sort of translate important scientific work um to you know digestible uh, interesting and exciting content um so yeah i sort of get the i have the privilege of getting a, a little bit involved in everything and, and making sure it's sort of one cohesive whole not not a small job <laughs> very bitter <laughs> <laughs> no no yeah it is it's it's a bit tricky but it's 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 great fun and i absolutely love it because I, I i get to sort of be involved in, in everything that, that we do uh which is all working towards sort of helping sharks and rays yeah yeah awesome and it's really good as well for our audience to hear what it is that save Aussies foundation actually does and the huge variety of things that the organisation does do, um, because there are so many different facets to marine conservation, again, of which we'll we'll cover in this episode a little bit. Um, But I don't think we've talked about Save Our Seas since the very first trailer. So it's really good to go back to that and and kind of talk about what what Save Our Seas actually does. Um, But before we get into our questions today, um, we're kind of quizzing quizzing each other (laughs) on shark science and marine (laughs) conservation. Um, I do have one question that we ask all of our guests, um, and that question is, what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? So who wants to go first on this one? Jay, go on. <laughs> yeah, I get a few more minutes to think. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and then I think I'll be firing questions Thanks. at you yeah. both <laughs> after this. So this is the last, my last turn to like go first. Um Hands down, my best uh, experience has to have been uh, in 2016. I was lucky enough to accompany one of the uh, Marine Conservation Photography Grant winners to Bimini, uh, to the biological field station there. And there was a specific shot that Shin, who was the grant winner, was after um, and it needed to take place at sunset. So we went out to, I think it's called Triangle Rock. And we sat around the boat waiting for a while and eventually the lighting conditions were just perfect and um, yeah, we all hopped in the water. It was a small group of us uh, and we just had the most, I mean, the lighting was perfect. The sharks were very curious, uh, very friendly, like, um, and we just swam around and freed out with them. It must have been for about an hour of, of having these amazing interactions with these sharks. And the sharks are so um, 
yeah they're just really friendly and, and and playful like they would like almost like charge you like swim up to you and then as they got to you like just like change direction and swim in, in another way and we just yeah it was just amazing to spend this time in the ocean with these sharks in their natural habitats um and, and to show them that like sharks aren't these like vicious uh predators that the minute you into the ocean are going to just like <laughs> bite your leg off or anything like that we were we were just out there with masks um snorkels fins and swimming around with them and everyone just it was it was perfect like the photos that came out of that afternoon the videos everything like it's yeah magical is the only word that you can really use to describe it so yeah. oh yeah. amazing <laughs> Yeah, and there's something about sunset as well that just adds to that sort of magic atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and a really a really a really good point as well that sharks can be playful and they can be curious. Um and yeah, I think it was Richard Richard Rees in our second episode, he talked about this idea of you drop in the ocean and humans automatically think that everything turns around and goes <gasps> there's a human here where is that in actual fact they don't really pay that much attention at all um but yeah it's a really lovely experience so James how about you have you had enough time I think mine comes from uh schooling hammerheads in Galapagos which is something sort of growing up being mildly obsessed with sharks that it's the iconic sort of exciting or encounter that experience of of a carpet of sharks silhouetted overhead all schooling together um and it's just that that image has sort of been burned into my retina retina since I was since I was a kid and it's something I always hoped that one day I would I would get the opportunity to see for myself and um you know I was sort of lucky enough a few years back to be in, in Galapagos which is you know synonymous with all kinds of abundant life but particularly you know schooling hammerheads and we were sort of up at the most northern islands, which are Wolf and Darwin, which are some of the best places to see this behaviour. And we spent a whole day at one of them. No sharks, no hammerheads. <laughs> Moved to another one, no sharks, no schooling hammerheads. And we thought, okay, fine, well, let's go back to the other one. There was at least a bit more happening there and, and jump in. It was actually also sort of afternoon, getting on for evening, so the light's getting a bit less and and sort of given up hope now this evening was our last chance before moving on and we roll in and straight away there are hammerheads absolutely everywhere and we managed to go down and sit on a rock and just watch them come past and come past and then to top it all off some bottlenose dolphins decided to just plow through the middle of them and the hammerheads part and just let them through and it's like wow okay fine you know if this is it i can die happy i've finally seen this iconic thing and it is absolutely stunning. Wow. Oh, what an image of, yeah. of you just sitting on a rock underwater. And in my head, it's kind of like you sitting at a bench in a park just with your legs crossed. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> just yeah. like looking up to the sky and just all yeah. these hammerheads going overhead. It was incredible. We're very, very, very lucky. Oh, amazing. Another one mm. to, to add to the list. Moving on, because we have a lot of questions to cover. Um, so I'm going to hand it over to Jade, who put out the call on social media. Um, and Jade is actually going to ask the questions, which will be really unusual for me. So Jade, I will hand it over to you. 
Yes. Um, so firstly, I just want to thank everyone that did submit their their questions. Um, we had some really, really interesting questions. And as Ali, you said, we're going to try and make our way through as many of them as possible. Um, but I think, yeah, we're going to start off with, uh, you know, just off the back of the Young Marine Biologist Summit that happened this weekend with um, the Marine Biological Association. I know that it was one of the topics that were covered over the weekend and it is obviously quite an important one. Um, but yeah, James, I guess what made you become a shark scientist? Yeah, well, um, firstly, it was sort of just shark enthusiast. I think sort of quite typically as, 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 a, as a kid, I was um, sort of fascinated about these sort of enigmatic creatures, uh, you know, roaming our oceans. You know, at the time as a kid, it was sort of also sort of, you know that that fascination stemmed from things like the the jaws and other films so it was more like you know wow look at these cool amazing creatures and aren't they also slightly terrifying um and i just wanted to sort of had an insatiable appetite for wanting to know more and more about them um and then my older brother was a marine biologist uh mostly interested in uh, nudibranchs which i think isla could could uh share that passion with us um but for anyone listening this so nudibranchs are basically slugs they're slugs in the sea but that isn't entirely giving them their due credit because they are very colourful and pretty, um, but they're not sharks. <laughs> <laughs> and then, anyway, so he got, you know, he was doing a lot of diving through that as well. And I was like, well, this diving sounds awesome. You know, I, I need to sort of um, do that. So I ended up doing some diving with, with, with him. And so I was very fortunate to see my first ever shark, which um, was absolutely terrified of us and just ran the other way. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's pretty cool. Uh, bizarre. I want to see more of these. And then was desperate to you know, do more diving, see more sharks and learned that almost universally <laughs> they run away <laughs> because they're yeah, like, what is this strange, noisy, bubbly breathing thing? It's, you know, we're not, we're not sort of typically something they would normally see. And this just sort of sparked the fascination even more. And then, you know, whenever I love biology in general, and I, I sort of, whenever I could, did biology but then marine within that and sort of you know started off doing corals and stuff and and then and then uh after leaving university i was like well i don't particularly want to end up you know in a city somewhere you know, what, you know doing something like a, a desk job and things and i thought well what, what can i do that um could involve something marine and especially sharks if I can. And, and because of my sort of background in biology, sort of I, I saw my route into that as, as, as science. And I found actually the, the, the Bimini Shark Lab um, in the Bahamas and they had volunteer opportunities. And I was, uh, you know, fortunate enough to get a, get a uh, volunteership uh, there. And I was out there for several months having a whale of a time, sorry, inappropriate pun, but um, <laughs> Uh, studying sharks and it was absolutely incredible and there I was just there I was hooked again sorry <laughs> uh, not the best choice of words for um, but yeah and then I was obsessed with sharks and now I was actually doing research with sharks and sort of my research career spun on from there and uh, but it, it all stemmed from in some way finding an excuse to work with sharks. I wonder actually what the equivalent of a whale of a time would be in mm, shark, I don't in know. Uh, a fantastic time <laughs> maybe or yeah, or jawsom it was absolutely jawsom i think we can maybe find a few <laughs> yeah yeah i use jawsom a lot yeah. 
But yeah, cool. re- really fascinating. It definitely seems that Bimini is kind of like the the root of a lot of people's uh, yeah. careers into shark science, actually. Yeah, I think it's like this amazing sort of conduit that channels people with passion for these animals through and provides an opportunity. There's you know all different kinds of volunteer opportunities in the world, but it's quite rare. And this is somewhere where you're taken straight into real active research projects and you're working on them sort of every single day and you rotate, rotate through the different projects, but also rotate through helping out with the sort of maintenance of, of the lab and sort of life there as well. So you have that full field experience, but then also puts you in a really good position, which is also what happened for me is I then actually applied for an advertised role that at the time was an internship with something called the Save Our Seas Foundation, um, which I was really fortunate enough to get. But I think that was partly because I had this direct experience and already knew a lot of what I would have to do in that role. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. Yeah, because a lot of, I mean, this is kind of bleeding into the next question slightly, but a a lot of science is actually the very practical side of it. So the running of a lab and... Mm you know, working with different partners and the, the practicalities behind field work and all of that kind yeah. of stuff. So that must have been really, really solid experience. Yeah, no, it's very, very special. Um, but, yeah, what about you, Isla? You, obviously, you're, you're, you are marine, but and you are sharky <laughs> by association. <laughs> sharky by association. Um, yeah, so my, my career has been slightly more wonky than that it's been very sort of zigzaggy um so I studied marine science at university like like James did except um I actually specialized marine mammals boo um yeah (laughs) um so my first research project was on minke whales which is a species of whale that's resident to UK waters they're very cute they've got little white spots on their pectoral fins um, and I was actually looking at the habitat use and sort of why why they appear where they do and how they use the habitat around them. Um, and then my next project was actually on seal and salmon conflicts. So that's quite a big conflict in Scotland because there's a lot of salmon fishing, lots of uh, fisheries dedicated to salmon and, you know, seals do predate on salmon. So there's a little bit of a conflict there. So I did another project um, in that, and that's how I got into human-wildlife conflict, um, which is now my area of expertise. Um, so very, it's not so much focused on the marine life anymore, but it's very much these kind of really broad-scale issues that affect how humans interact with and how we manage marine life, which you know are things like environmental governance and um conflict management and resource politics and all that kind of stuff and um, but now since then since doing my PhD I've been able to to come full circle and, and and come back to sort of the marine sphere and apply a sort of combine those two paths if you like and then also um I said yesterday um I was part of the young marine biologist summit um and the way that I described it is I I keep my toes in the water like literally and figuratively um, through the work that I do with the Save Our Seas Foundation, um, so through this podcast um, and, you know, writing and stuff like that, and then also for uh, Basque and Shark Scotland as well. Um, so I do definitely get to still be part of the sharky side, which is really cool. Um, but the more the more people that I speak to who, on this podcast, and I hear about their research careers, like everybody's route into marine conservation and marine science is different. 
it's that there's no kind of one way of doing it um and it's kind of really exciting now that even you know at the age of 30 my career is still changing and still going in in different directions so yeah this actually leads on to the next question really well um and we've covered a little bit of it uh now in this discussion but um yeah, I'm just to continue the conversation with Isla. Um, what advice do you have for those wanting to get into marine conservation or marine biology? Uh, well, I mean, it depends on you know whether you want to go into the down the scientist route, down the academic route, or whether you want to be kind of in the more practical side. You know, activism working for marine organisations or fisheries management. Um, the biggest piece of advice that I can give is to find people, you know, you can do a Google search, you can have a look online, find people that are working in that area and just drop them an email and just ask, you know, if they have any advice or they can tell you a little bit about their career path. The majority of people are really happy to help. It's quite scary to sort of put yourself out there like that, um, but it kind of helps you to get an idea of just what opportunities are out there and how you can possibly sort of get to that point if you if you like um and also if you aren't quite sure yet of where you want to go specifically talking to a huge range of people that work across those different sectors can also you know help you to develop your own ideas and your own interests as well as you go along yeah, and it's not linear, like yeah, it can, exactly. as you, yeah, just <clears throat> Alice's experience compared to James, you look mm. at the two and you can see that um, mm. <laughs> it can go any what way. Yeah, completely. And and yeah, it's important that, yeah, don't worry about if, if, if you can't get the dream opportunity straight away, the, the, you know, skills are always transferable. And even if you end up working in something terrestrial, you know, it'll help when you come to do something marine or, or, or vice versa. Um, and uh yeah, I think also, and something else that Isla said is, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to these people. You know, they'll have all been in your position at some point. And, yeah, actually, sort of, I hadn't really thought about it till Isla mentioned it. But, um, you know, for example, I only managed to get my PhD supervisor through pestering them relentlessly until they gave in <laughs> and agreed, but, you know, through email and things. So, but it is, it, it, there may seem like there's this sort of barrier, but but there's there's people at the other end and they're usually willing to help. Yeah, and just just to kind of thought off that as well is that there's lots of different organisations, ourselves included, Save Our Seas Foundation included, mm. that have you know all their project leaders on the website, um, and mm. you know you can find people through them. So there's also you know minor- minorities and shark sciences, um, the the organisers of which we've had on this podcast before. You know there's there's lots of resources available to you to find yeah. people who um are you know maybe in the career path that you want to be in but you know yeah. maybe you're not sure but that's completely fine definitely i think there's also a broader array a broader array of career options in marine science than sort of people uh uh originally might expect you know sort of think of the marine biologist uh, or, or or you know maybe someone working in a national park that's enforcing or diving or whatever or a, or a technical diver there's also, I think it'll be good to hear from you, Jade, about this, maybe a bit about your path, but also some of the you know, comms team as well, because obviously we now have a whole comms team that's working in marine conservation and specifically for sharks, but but none of these people is is from a marine science background. I, um, as far as I'm aware, Jade, you can correct me if I'm wrong there, but... Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, there is between the three of us in, in the comms team, like there's obviously a deep love for, for nature and the ocean and, you know, that sense of, uh, I don't know if I want to say consciousness or responsibility, wanting to leave, make a difference and leave the world a better place. But um, we have all come about it in a very, you know, it's like, like I mentioned earlier, it's not linear at all. Um so for me, my, my background is more marketing and communications and PR um, and how I got to work for the Save Our Seas Foundation was I did. I started volunteering. If they had events or anything like that, I would, um, you know, help with doing their social media and just covering like the events and stuff for them um, just over these certain times. And I think I could also prove the value of a position like a social media manager at the foundation because you know just managing these events and then reporting back saying you know this is how much coverage we were able to get this event or get save our seas and this is the audience engagements and the reach and stuff like that all of a sudden it became this very tangible thing and and it had um, an extreme value in communicating uh, shark conservation about sharks about the foundation with an audience that otherwise didn't know anything about this really before um and yeah so that that would be how i uh got into this field was i just started volunteering for the the foundation um and uh here i am <laughs> but yeah de- definitely my my background in marketing online content um and PR, I think, you know, there, 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 there's so many steps that at the time you're like, what what am I actually doing with my life? Where, where is this going? And now I sit and I look back at it and I'm like, I did yeah. exactly what I needed to do to be where I am now. And I, honestly, I have my dream job now. I've never been happier. Oh, awesome. <laughs> That's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she doesn't have to say that, yeah. even though her boss is currently <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah. But yeah. No, congr- no, I can't even say it. Contractually obliged. <laughs> but I think... I think that's a really good message, though, because I think that's kind of the crux of what we're all saying is that we this, even though we've all had very different routes into a marine science career or, you know, marine conservation, we all it all started with that passion, with that spark. Okay, we're going to just dive into all of our we are quite heavily weighted in the shark (laughs) question (laughs) category um so james get ready um but yeah i think (laughs) can i I google during the podcast was that cheating it's cheating okay other search engines are available (laughs) (laughs) yeah um so i'm going to start off with with one that i thought is quite interesting because um, it kind of, to me, it highlights how, you know, we know a lot about sharks and like there are people who obviously know um, a lot about sharks in our audience and, and out there, but it also, there is so much that we still have to learn. Um, so the first one um, is how long do sharks live for? Uh, yeah, well, good question. Um, short version is it varies hugely because there are something like, I don't know, Isla might have a more specific or recent stat, but it's somewhere over 500 species of shark. I think that, well, I guess the, the, the main thing is how long can they live? And the longest is, is the longest known is a Greenland shark. 
which I think is confirmed up to about 270 years. So already, again, I'll need to double check exactly, but I think that's like older than America as an independent country, which is pretty insane. But it could be like over 400, sort of, we, it's, sort of, you can't be too sure when you make these estimates. But so there are some sharks that might be able to live several centuries, which is ridiculous. Um, but most sharks sort of, again, we don't, it's hard to know exactly because we don't see their full lifespan often. Um, but it's usually somewhere around 25 years. A lot of shark species will live 25 up to 50, but some of these others can live hundreds, which is pretty crazy. Okay, another question that we could look at, um, or a question that we could look at with this shark age thing, um, is the age relative to size? Um, so are the larger sharks, do they live for longer? Does bigger mean older? It's kind of yes and no in that sort of sharks do continue to grow and get bigger the older they get, um, but they will grow at different rates. Some species will grow very slowly, some will grow quite quickly, and some naturally do grow to different sizes so a great big whale shark of 14 meters uh you know could reach that size at younger ages than a than a you know a, a white shark reaches i don't know say four meters or something so they will grow at different rates and the rate to which they grow changes so they get, they grow slower and slower the older they get as well um so yeah a bigger shark will be older um but not necessarily the biggest ones are the oldest living if that makes sense mm. And of course, there's a lot of them that we still have no idea exactly, how long yeah. they live. Yeah. Baskin shark being one of them. I did read when I was doing my research for the Sea Life Showdown yesterday with a goblin shark that they actually, their length shrinks the older they get because their what? nose shrinks. <laughs> <laughs> so the rostrum, the big long rostrum that they're... Um, that they're known for that actually yeah. apparently shrinks over time wow so what 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 age are goblin sharks at peak size when are they in their prime i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> that's bonkers i guess it's yeah like us as we get older our spines compress and we start shrinking yeah. again shame yeah. poor goblin sharks yeah uh, but the, i guess i guess the take-home message as well from this is just that sharks in general are long-lived and also slow to reproduce which makes them really vulnerable to exploitation so yeah well what it's still this is one of the first facts that i remember learning when i did that social media campaign for save our seas um it was probably eight years ago when i was volunteering was that whale sharks reach sexual maturity at 30 years old like they have like I mean, that's not even to say they have their first baby at 30 years old. They reach sexual maturity and are able to start that process. So that just goes to show like how vulnerable they are to overfishing and um, exploitation um, because they just can't re not replace their population, but um, it's, yeah, it takes a little longer. Greenland shark is 150, they think, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. That is, wow, that is extreme. <laughs> yeah sorry james carry on no no i was just saying a, a slight tangent with the whale sharks was sort of relating to reproduction and, and things is i think I, I think it's only from one specimen but they they can have up to 300 embryos in development at a time everything from what seems to be recently fertilized to sort of ready to pup um which is kind of mind-blowing it's then like well how does this happen and is it because they're so big and roaming the open ocean do they store sperm and then like have a conveyor belt of fertilization and just regularly produce pups or what's going on there 
Uh, we don't know, but... <laughs> I love sharks. I love sharks. They're so amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's pretty awesome. But yeah, sorry, I'm not quite sure where we are now, but whale sharks are cool. Um, no, okay. <laughs> Focus, but back, back to our, our questions. Um, yeah, I mean, if that's... I mean, that was just basically speaking about sharks' age. So now we're going to move on to uh, sharks' eyesight. Um, do they have good or poor eyesight? Uh not great. <laughs> well, it, again, it, it, I think it, it varies. I mean, if, if you're talking about, uh, so like in, in most things that have eyes, they have different types of cells that sense either like colors, which are the cones or contrast, which is the difference between light and dark. And those are what we call rods. And, and shark eyes are mostly made up of, of rods. And, and so what they mostly are able to tell is sort of contrast between light and dark. And the the density is very. The density of rods varies a lot between species, and that will depend a lot on their ecology. And there's also why you see like different pictures of shark eyes, and they often have very different shaped pupils, and that will be related to whether they're used to sort of scanning the horizon or looking at things up close when they're rummaging around. Um, uh, and they're often off, they're often operating in really low light, so it's more important to sort of be able to tell whether it's light or dark, because that's the only information they really might have at depth. Um, but they're also a bit like cats, where they have this, you know, reflecting membrane behind their eyes, which Isla, I can't remember. I don't know if you can remember the name of, but it's something um, Latin. I or... can, <laughs> uh, but I don't know if I pronounce it right. The okay. tapetum, we'll forgive you. <laughs> tapetum lucidium, I think something like that. Basically, that thing, yeah, like cat's eyes. So, like the light that comes into their eye is sort of reflected back through their eye. Um, so they get like a double hit of light to be able to pick up low light levels. Um, I think um, I was reading earlier that uh, that can the yeah. that membrane, the reflective membrane, that can allow sharks to see at least ten times better in low light than than we can. Um, so it's oh, wow. a good function. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Another shark superpower. <laughs> Something also that I wanted to bring up. I don't know if I can actually say this word i've been trying so hard <laughs> I, I i i've known what they are for a really long time but i've never had to say it out loud so obviously when you're something like a shark and you're moving quite fast through water and you're obviously chasing prey and stuff you've got to find a way of protecting your eyes yes. uh, um okay. so some shark species have wait for it they have nictitating members. that's correct yes <laughs> yes amazing i've been practicing that <laughs> Um, which is kind of like a third eyelid, so that kind of comes over and yes. covers the eye. Yeah. But other species, which I find really creepy, like great white sharks, mm. they don't have that, so they just roll their eyes right yeah. back. It's pretty eyes. weird. So they just have a white eye, yes. which I think is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then you also have, very quickly, as Armani mentioned on our third episode, you also yeah. have the whale shark, which has teeth yeah, on that its Yeah, that is <laughs> reasons slightly that we creepy don't know. and unnerving and bizarre. <laughs> and I also actually didn't know until I listened to that episode. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. I think it's really new, really new science. But I also would love to be the person, that love to have been in that room when <laughs> the scientists found that. Uh, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um... um yeah, another cool, well, another interesting fact to consider, and I also only realized this recently, is 
um, if you think about it, the shark's vision is also somehow compromised because its eyes are on the side of its head, so it can't actually see straight in front of it. So um, that's actually, yeah, I learned that that's the reason that uh, sharks swim and like swerve side to side is so that they can like, you know, they also don't have a neck that they can turn left or right. So that's kind of how they swim and they're able to scan the entire horizon, which is really interesting. Uh, that is really cool. And also something so sort of thinking about vision in, a, in, in that way as well. That's also one of the reasons people think that hammerheads might have their, you know, eyes out on weird pokey bits at the side of their head is that they get that sort of increased field of vision that gives them uh, 360 vision. And I can't remember either whether it's in the vertical or horizontal plane, but they have 360 vision one way around. So they can basically see right round to their tail. Um, but it's, it's, I think it's a, just under 360 but they get the full 360 achieved via that movement as they swim um which is pretty crazy they they can see behind them without having eyes in the back of the head that's very cool and also yeah. uh useful for the hammerhead so they don't have to ask their friends if the butt look big looks big they just are able to look themselves <laughs> <laughs> they can just they're like ah i've eaten too many stingrays Okay, and onto onto that. Speaking of scalloped, well, speaking of hammerheads, uh, the next question that we got is about scalloped hammerheads, um, and also, I mean, James is something that you were lucky enough to witness. Uh, we got a question asking why do scalloped hammerheads form school, and are there any other species of shark that do the same? Yeah. So. Short answer is we don't currently know, but we have lots of ideas. So hammerheads form these fantastic schools. And interestingly, actually, it's it's usually only during the day. So they form these big schools around seamounts or, or wherever during the day. And then that school largely breaks up at night, which people have discovered sort of through tracking work and things. And then it seems like at night they go and hunt sort of on their own, sort of they're solitary hunters and they come back and form these big schools in the day and it's it's quite hard to go and ask hammerhead hey guys what are you doing um <laughs> so we have to try and figure it out from in other ways and it seems to be some kind of refuging behavior when they're when they're doing these schools they don't do much else apart from hang around and swim um and uh but you know refuging refuging from what we don't know it could be uh reducing energy costs maybe there's a lot of there's a lot of ideas about how sort of forming groups and sitting in each other's slip tree, slip streams and things and helps reduce the costs of swimming um so a lot of these sharks live on sort of what we call an energetic knife edge where they only really get enough food to sustain the energy they sort of need to keep going um so anything you can do to save energy is 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 great and these schools often form in sort of low current areas and stuff so they find a good spot to sort of sit and hold space um but there are other ideas like it, it's it's uh depending on where you are the hammerhead schools might be mostly female uh so you know they could be finding a good spot where they're sort of together and they are avoiding unwanted male attention because shark mating is uh yeah brutal <laughs> yeah, for, yeah it can be pretty brutal and in some instances can even be fatal for the female because it's so um, you know, essentially the males have to bite on. And if that happens too much, they can get injuries and things. It's So really, it's something you want to avoid unless you actually, you know, need to do it. 
Um, so that could be one thing, but in some places they're sort of more juvenile schools. So are they sort of avoiding predation or at least reducing their own risk, safety in numbers? Um, we're not quite sure. And in terms of other species, yeah, a lot of other species do it, again, for different reasons. Uh, silky sharks do it. Uh, we think they're quite a social species, but they will in certain locations school like hammerheads, maybe for similar reasons. Um, but also, like in some places, there'll be grey reef sharks that school, but that might be more sort of being attracted to a common resource. So you have these grey reef sharks that are normally deeper on reefs, but sometimes they see sort of like pregnant females aggregating in shallower water. Could that be they're just attracted to a warmer, shallower water, which then, again, we mentioned earlier how sharks are reliant on the water temperature for their own metabolic rate. Uh, are they sort of behaviorally finding somewhere, choosing somewhere warmer to increase their body temperature to then maybe help gestation, you know, help the development of the, the, the fetus or the litter? Um, again, we're not entirely sure, but there's lots of ideas. Another question that we got is, do sharks really have no bones at all? Not even a calcified bone. Um, James, I'm going to let you handle this one. Okay, uh, yeah, good question. And, well, technically not really. So they have cartilaginous skeletons, and cartilage is like the soft, squidgy type of material that's in your nose and isn't sort of proper hard bone that we'd say sort of ossified bone where it gets calcified. Um, uh, and, and that's really what distinguishes them from all other kinds of fish. So there's sort of cartilaginous fish and, and then bony fish. But then certain bits of shark skeletons do get ossified or calcified. So particularly their teeth, their teeth is the most obvious one, you know, that their, their teeth do get calcified and it's sort of the, probably the closest thing to sort of proper bone you'll find in a shark. Um, but there's also, you know, that bits of their spine will also get sort of some calcification and things. So you can find, you know, fossilized spine and stuff, but it's, it's, it's mostly their teeth. So I suppose if you think about what fossilizes in sharks, the thing we almost always find is their teeth. Um, but sometimes you can find particularly thick or, you know, the calcified bits of cartilage as well. Not that often. Um, and then also their poop <laughs> too. Yes. Which, why doesn't that just dissolve into the water? How does that actually fossilize? <laughs> yeah, very true. I mean... Maybe it's their diet. If they're eating a diet that's like quite heavy, yeah, true. In, yeah. No. the non-biologist no. coming in with the fact. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is this is the whole point we were making at the beginning was that there are so many different facets yeah. of marine science and conservation, so many questions to answer that even if you say you're an expert, there's no way you can know absolutely everything. In fact, as an expert, you know more and more about less and less. Yeah. So. Yeah. Marine poop experts, please come on yes. the podcast. Please, aunt, come help us. We'd love to talk to you. <laughs> We've got a really good question that said, is there any hope in saving sharks? Of course, yeah, definitely. I think, and there's a, a huge community of people from all around the world that are working really hard to make sure there is um, hope for sharks in the future. And you know, I think that's sort of really important sort of for us to focus on as well, because it's actually pretty disheartening. There's a lot of doom and gloom. There's a lot of, you know, very sort of scary and negative me uh, messaging, you know, not just around sharks, because they are in a real critical situation, but sort of generally for ecosystems around the world, whether it's sort of climate change or, or something else, it sort of can be pretty overwhelming. But there really is hope. And there's a lot of people doing fantastic work and working towards sustainable fisheries. We are starting to see some examples of, of sustainable fisheries for sharks in the world. Um, you know, there's a, a few in the US and a few in Australia. And I think those show as examples of, you know, 
actually it is possible, you know, and if we manage it properly and have the right information, then we can find a way forward. And then also things like there's a greater focus on MPAs and, and, and especially, you know, MPAs that are long-term and well-enforced are really starting to have a positive impact. Like there are some really great examples, for example, uh, like Cabo Pulmo in Mexico. There's a place that's it's actually a pretty small MPA. They don't always have to be huge, but they have to be well-enforced. And this is somewhere that had real bad shark declines, um, but is now seeing um, fantastic recovery, not just in numbers, but also diversity. They're seeing more sharks of different types than they used to. I think the important thing there is it also took time. It wasn't like we made an MPA and then a few years later, hey, great, the sharks are back. You know, these changes take decades or more to start to take effect. And it just takes time and persistence and passionate people. Um, and yeah, in time, we will make a real difference. Um, and I think there's more and more as well of the younger generation too, who are becoming... So when I was growing up, for example, there was so much misinformation about sharks mm. and sharks didn't really kind of get a look in in a conservation sense. Um, yeah. And that's completely changed now. So, so many more people are aware of the threats that sharks are facing and yeah. just coming fresh from the uh, Young Marine completely. Biologist Summit yesterday yeah. and then you see Sharks for Kids run by Gillian Morris-Brake um, and you see all these incredibly passionate shark ambassadors that are going to be the next generation and that are kind of up and coming um i think that for me mm. is there's so much hope in that um you know in the, in the next generation of shark conservationists and scientists that are gonna that are gonna come through the ranks too mm. and and people listening to the researchers i mean there, there, there's so many marine biologists and and uh shark scientists mm. out there doing all of this research which has to um inform policy you know whether it's fisheries management how to how uh where to enforce marine protected areas and how they're enforced um that the two play hand in hand quite yeah. well um i think also something that's worth also highlighting here is consumers there's definitely i can say just in my eight years working with save our seas foundation from a consumer um standpoint or I can't, the word's escaping me now, but basically consumers are being a lot more conscious. I think it's like, it's got to do with, you know, we've got the climate change movement that's happening. We've got um, this call for a lot more people to try and eat more plant-based, uh, but you have more people who are choosing to use the power of their plate when it comes to mm. their seafood choices and to either, you know, um, buy seafood that's sustainable, reduce their seafood consumption. Not everyone has this luxury, of course, like, um, but, you know, that's where I am seeing a lot of hope come through is more people are choosing to do, mm -hmm. to follow that kind of lifestyle where they're, they're, they're more, con like their, their dietary choices are more considered mm -hmm. for the environment and for marine yeah, life. Yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, quickly, like, just leading on to the next question, because uh, we, we touched on this, but uh, another really good question that we got, and I want to highlight it because this was something we celebrated last week. Um, any updates on conservation efforts and policy? Um, James. Okay, yeah. So obviously it's, it's um, 
especially with things like policy, that's often quite slow going uh, and things. Because there's a lot of a lot of cogs in a very big machine that sort of need to all come together to to make changes. But there are large communities of very passionate people that are working very hard to bring about these changes. And one of the biggest ones, uh, which I think you're referring to, is the the Mako retention ban uh, uh, in in Atlantic tuna fisheries. Um, which is it came about through the the strong work of of, of the Shark Trust and the Shark Alliance um, through many years trying to make sure that the the very strong evidence of makos being in a very particularly dire situation with massive declines and slow reproduction and intense fisheries that actually really the only way for them maybe for them to have any kind of hope is to simply not retain any of them not not catch makos and if you do to release them alive. Um, and there's been sort of resistance to this in the past, but uh, uh, I think it was last year. Uh, my timeline is slightly COVID confused, but recently makos were listed on CITES, which again is a, is a massive sort of win for conservation. Uh, don't worry too much about the complications of CITES, but basically what it means is it, is it restricts international trade. Uh, if you're if if you're signed up to CITES, you can't trade a CITES listed species without proving that your use of it is sustainable, which is actually very hard to do because most species get listed there and it's such a bad situation that you can't really use them sustainably. So Mako's got listed on CITES and then this, and then and now we have this retention ban in, in, in Atlantic tuna fisheries, which is particularly significant because um, a lot of people may not realise, but, but actually Atlantic fisheries, especially European fisheries, are some of the biggest shark fisheries in the world and where some of the biggest declines and impacts are being seen. Uh, you know, they're sort of being exported globally from there, but that's where a lot of the intense fishing has happened. So to have this kind of, um, these kind of hard lines being introduced for sharks and rays is a real positive step. Yeah, it's, it's, it was a monumental uh, decision that came through. And it, we're talking as, as recently as last week um, that this came through. So, you know, a huge celebration um, and I think from my perspective, or, you know, it's a well-known perspective, but from the perspective of like environmental governance and conflict management, one of the trickiest things about species like sharks is that they're so highly migratory that any sustainable large-scale conservation plan has to involve cooperation from lots of different uh, national governments and world leaders and as we all know that cooperation is so hard um, to actually come into force so this is why it's taken so long and this is why these things take such a long time um, but I mean it's still so I think the retention bans for two years right and then it's kind of going to be used as a springboard for a more long-term plan and it's hoped that it'll kind of build relationships along the way because as you said, James, the EU is still a sort of major threat to this plan because they kind of want to resume landings as soon as possible, really. Um, but yeah, and just to just to emphasise the importance of those kind of of the NGOs and the other like non-state actors and actually getting this through. I mean, it was such a huge, huge achievement. Yeah. Yeah. So. Really yeah, positive. there's a, a lot of dedicated people. Really positive. Oh, and we're mm. going to end on a high note, a quick one. Um, <laughs> okay. 
last question. Um, I love this question, which is why I'm not letting us go until we've uh, okay. answered it. But um, <laughs> we'll start with Ayla. Ayla, if you could uh, have a beer with any shark, <laughs> which would it be? <laughs> I okay. love this question so much. Um, so I would like to have a beer with a Greenland shark. Because. Oh. No, you're so And mine. Okay, let's. <laughs> no fair. No. Okay, fine. Sorry, guys. Okay. Sorry, guys. I can pick up another okay. one. No, 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 my reason you shouldn't have come to me first jane sorry yeah no. Uh, no, i think we it doesn't matter who we went to we're all gonna have so the same one <laughs> well i guess like to be honest like or any sort of deep sea species of shark that's been around for a really mm. long time because mm. i would really like to know their perspective on like history mm. they must have seen some things like exactly my exactly why i wanted <laughs> to they've got stories to tell but yeah, that that would be that would be yeah. my answer. I'm so sorry, I've nicked you. No, no, no. It's it's it is it's an amazing answer, and I just think like the stuff that's happened in a single generation of one of those animals is is Mad. ridiculous. Um, I mean, would they would they even know? Would yeah. they even know? Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, thing? yeah. Maybe their brains work at the speed of everything else, and they're like, what? <laughs> I can registering. Yeah. I can imagine them being really sort of philosophical. Yeah. But like they take ages to get to that point. Yes. Yes. <laughs> come back and say what was like the like the the ant trees. Yes, and, exactly. And Lord I, of the Rings. Like, same thing I was thinking. Yeah, the tree ants. <laughs> um, the tree ants. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, James. Uh, yeah. Who would you? Which shark would you like to have a beer with? I think maybe. Uh, Maybe a tiger shark, actually, because they'll eat pretty much anything, and they'll come to you with such random different. <laughs> come over, like they're like, there's one time I like found this trash can, and like, dude, it was amazing, <laughs> and just like the kind of stories they'd have. I can imagine them all being like piratey and like, um, yeah, yeah, quite scrappy, yeah, yeah, rocking up with like a, a hook here and there, and just having gnarly stories of <laughs> this dugong they'd had a run in with or something, and yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Just like living, living yeah. life on the edge. Yeah. That's a really good answer. Right, go on then. Go on then, Jade. Jade, what's... <laughs> when this question was first asked, without even giving it any thought, I wanted to say blue sharks. I think that they are so cute and um, just so playful and friendly and curious. And they've just got a really cool energy. And they're, they're, I'm pretty sure that they'd be fun uh, to, have a, to sit down and have a drink with. Like... Um, yeah, so that's that's mine. Oh, that's such a good question. That's such a good question. And if any listeners want to send in their suggestions of which species <laughs> of shark they'd have a beer with, or or ray or skate, because you know we don't want to discriminate. Um, <laughs> you know, please do let us know. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, that was a fantastic question and yeah. fantastic questions throughout this podcast. Thank you. No, brilliant. Thank you very much. Oh, it's great. Um, but just before I let you guys go, I just mm. wanted to ask very quickly. Um, so we are going into 2022, believe mm. it or not. So what is coming yeah. up for Save Our Seas? So yeah, we're actually not next year, but the year after is our 20th anniversary. So we've got a lot of things rumbling in the background leading up to that. Um, but there are big things. Uh, there's Sharks International next year, which is a big conference uh, 
that only happens once every four years. So it's a bit like a leap year. <laughs> um, it's, it's the Leap Shark Conference. I don't know. Uh, but that tries to bring the whole community together where a lot of these big things we've been talking about get into motion because it's the opportunity for experts to come together and, and not just experts, but enthusiasts and really share their passion. Um, and we're heavily involved with that. We're, we're, we're sponsoring it to try and bring as many people together uh, as possible. But um, we've also got actually three different types of grants. So if you're sitting here thinking that you want to get involved or you have a project that that um, you want to get off the ground, um, we have Keystone grants, which are sort of big multi-year grants on shark conservation projects or education. We're not just research. We have a big emphasis on education. Uh, we have our small grants, which uh, we're particularly passionate about. They're the same kind of thing, but specifically targeted at early career researchers. So if you're sort of up and coming and you want to get a, a foot in the door of, of marine conservation and have a project, then, then these are for you. Um, both of these will be opening early next year. But we also have a third type of grant, which is actually this year, 2021 was its inaugural year, but will be opening again next year, later in the year. And this is our storytelling grant. And this really relates to trying to sort of um, find stories that raise awareness, but instill this passion in people um, for our marine environments. And again, this is related to early career um, people. Um, so if you're starting out in, in marine conservation storytelling, so at the moment, these are, are currently focusing on photography, but we do plan to expand them to sort of other areas in, in, in future years, and that will be opening up later in the year. And then, of course, we'll have all our projects uh, that we'll be funding next year, which uh, we are currently at Not Liberty to discuss. But we'll be making, making announcements early next year about all the exciting projects that we'll be supporting and the work they're doing next year. And we do have various other sort of exciting communication uh, campaigns planned as well. But those are very much in development and you'll have to watch this space. Yes, watch this space. As James said, there is lots of exciting stuff going on at the Save Our Seas Foundation, which you can find out more about on our website, savearseas.com. And that includes this podcast. We have two episodes left of this season, which will be on climate change. So definitely make sure you stay tuned for them. And then we'll start season two in the new year. So if you have any questions you'd like pitch to actual marine experts, then now's the time to let us know. You can get in touch on Isla, that's I-S-L-A, at savearseas.com. A huge thank you to Jade and James from Save Our Seas for coming on the podcast. Um, I know you're very busy, but it was so much fun to talk to you about sharks. And thank you as well to David Knight, who wrote this lovely jingle, and to you at home for listening. Have a jawsome week and we'll see you next time.